Let's pray. God, it's been a heavy week of trials, um, both for our, our world as a whole, uh, and I know for so many who are here today, uh, just in uh, their individual worlds, just dealing with the uh, the pain and the brokenness of of life in this world on various levels. And just as that song confessed, uh, we need you. Whether we are uh, in the midst of a trial or watching the trials of others unfold around us, we need you. God, so much in our world today wants to strip our focus from you and the hope and the realities that are ours in you. And our eyes are constantly being drawn away from you uh, and on on our circumstances, on our seen realities. I just pray that today would be a day where you would use your word and your spirit um, to change the way that we view our trials and to change the things that we run to in the face of our trials. God, that you would empower us and embolden us to be your ambassadors of hope amidst even the most hopeless of life circumstances. But we need you, we need your word, we need your spirit to make that happen. And so come to us today and change us, transform us by the renewing of our minds through the beautiful living hope that is ours in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn with me in your Bibles to First Peter, we'll be continuing to work our way through First Peter chapter one. Um, Stephen, you did a fantastic job last week of just walking us through uh, the realities of uh, our living hope and uh, really all that it entails. You did a you did a fantastic job. I know my heart was. Super encouraged by that. I'm not going to re-preach your sermon, though it would be uh, a lot happier. <laughs> but uh, let's go back and, and remind ourselves of that beautiful truth that is ours in Christ. Uh, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And so uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to go back and uh, appreciate the full context that really gives weight to what we're talking about today, I would encourage you this afternoon to just take time. Actually, Stephen, you rocked it. You were, you were done before Rio even opened their doors to us. I mean, you, were, you got us out of here early, guys. So it won't take you that long to go back and listen to Stephen's sermon. Um, but, but really, uh, he helped uncover just the beauty in these verses that uh, in Christ, For those who are in Christ, for those of us who have bowed our knee to Jesus and made him the Lord of our lives, those of us who have surrendered control of all that we are and all that we do to the mighty name of Jesus and said, by your name, I will identify myself. By your authority, I will come under and I will live in light of who you are. What awaits us in Christ is a living hope. So in Him we find new life and salvation from all of our sins. In Him we find new identity and a new family as the adopted children of God. In Him we find an eternal reality and an eternal home filled with an eternal inheritance. All of which our new identity in these uh, this internal inheritance is being guarded by the power of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that awakened our dead hearts to the beauty of His grace. And as Stephen said last week, our living hope is not a, a pie-in-the-sky hope, but, but rather a hope that rests in the power of God and in our living Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in this hope that we rejoice. Now, I would love to set a new gold standard for short sermons and wrap it up right there. And we probably could, and, and we would all leave with a, with a smile on our face. And yet, Stephen's sermon alluded to something. Actually, not your sermon, but actually your prayer. Alluded to the realities that await us in this very next verse. Because while we all got to rejoice together in the beauty and the definition that is our living hope in Christ, for all of you who have been redeemed, all of you who have called on Jesus as Lord, we got to rejoice together in our living hope. And then we said amen. And we went back to our lives this week. Lives that, uh, whether we're watching the news or whether we're just walking through the circumstances of everyday life, we're upended by trials and tribulations that we face because we live in a fallen world. And so running parallel with the reality of our living hope, running parallel with everything that we just talked about that is our glorious living hope in Christ Jesus is this life and all that we face in the midst of it. And frankly, it would be, uh, it would be unbiblical for us to just end it here today, once again, championing our living hope and not dealing with life in a broken, fallen world. But thankfully, Peter doesn't do that for us. In fact, he, he takes on that reality head on. He doesn't shy away from it, but instead he shows us how our hope transcends it. How our hope comes down in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the chaos, and then actually applies to our darkest hour. 
Again, our hope is not some pie-in-the-sky hope, but it is a real, living, functional hope. So let's talk about that hope. Looking at verse 6, Peter says, In this, this being our, our living hope and all that we just talked about, all that it entails, he's, he's drawing our eyes back to that. He says, In this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, at first glance, this verse doesn't seem that bad. We rejoice, even though hard stuff may happen once in a while for a little while. Let's, let's move on. Let's not, because there's actually some very disconcerting things about this verse that we need to take head on. If we're going to be true to the human experience and true to the hope that we actually have in Christ, the first thing that I find particularly discomforting about this verse uh, is the term a little while. It lacks a lot of definition. Uh, that Greek word oligon, for those of you who are Greek buffs, means little, short, no big deal, right? Just poop, there goes your child. Poof, it's gone. Right? Maybe. Maybe if it's used in the way it's used in Mark 119, where uh, Oligon is used to describe a, a short little walk that Jesus took between disciple A and disciple B as he was calling his disciples. He was just walking alongside the Sea of Galilee, saw one disciple and took a, took a little walk and found another one. Boy, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if our trials were all just a short little walk? I'd like it. But wait, there's more. James 4.14, the very same used is to describe the whole of our lives. Where James 4.14 says that our lives are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Cool, right? Anybody else a little uncomfy? Oligon, not making you feel good? Cool, let's keep going. In other words, um, this suffering could be, this trial could be a short walk in the park. Or it could be something that lasts a whole lot longer. There's not a whole lot of definition by what we may be grieved by for a little while or the trials that we may experience. This gives us no hope for duration. And there's also something else that we need to realize. Second thing that I find a little discomforting is the term various. Various trials. The word here denotes a variety of many colors. Think the big box of Crayola crayons. Everyone got that picture in your mind? Who likes getting the fresh crayon box? Isn't that good? That's like my wife's dream is when we get new a new box of crayons. She opens it, just like, ha ah. Me, I just think of all the places those crayons are going to be used, that they shouldn't be. A trial of sorts, but... Uh, no, you think of the big box of Crayola crayons and, and, and just like the variety of colors that we see in this big box of crayons, there are a diverse variety of trials that we can face in this life. Some darker than others. However, unlike the 
box of crayons, we don't get to reach in the trial box and choose which ones we want to face. For Peter's audience, their trials were uh, intense persecution under Nero. And it wasn't persecution that just lasted for a short little walk in the park, but rather it was persecution that went on for years and years and years. And so we look at the trials that we can face, the trials that apparently we can rejoice in the midst of, and we have to acknowledge the reality that we don't know what kind of trials we're going to face or how long we are going to face them. And in this, we rejoice. It complicates things a little bit, doesn't it? All of a sudden, our living hope can quickly become clouded by life in a broken world that's filled with circumstances that oftentimes seem hopeless. And so how can anyone truly rejoice in our living hope amidst the mess of this life? I think the first thing that we see in this verse that gives us hope to be able to do that is that our ability to rejoice does not negate our ability to grieve. Our ability to rejoice does not negate our ability to grieve. The verse says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Note that both our ability to rejoice and our need to grieve, they run parallel in the life of the believer. And I think that this is something that we oftentimes lose sight of, especially within the church. We think that because we have a living hope, we have no right to grieve. But the reality is that both realities walk hand in hand. And it's actually our living hope that gives us the ability to rejoice in the midst of life's darkest days. And yet I think sometimes we think... That the mourning process is something that should escape us. That the grieving process is something that should elude us as believers. We have Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 4, where he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I realize that this is oftentimes uh, in reference to our sin that we are mourning. And yet, as we see over and over again in the Psalms, we see an equal reality that is being presented there. Psalm 23 being the most famous. In Psalm 23, 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you can look again and again in the Psalms that the, the realities that we face in this life, they are real and we are going to face them. These trials we are going to come up against. And in the midst of that, we run to the God of comfort. And he, begins, he, he becomes our strength, our hope, our safety, the one who fights for us, the one who secures us. And yet, if we do not mourn, if we do not grieve, if we slap on a smile and pretend that everything's okay in the face of our misery, we negate the beauty of the blessing that awaits us in Christ.
Peter's not saying that we must dance when someone that we love dies. He's not saying that we need to sing amidst broken relationships, failing marriages, or a wayward child. He's not saying that we just keep smiling as the effects of sin and brokenness invade our world in every way, shape, and form. It's okay to grieve those losses. It's okay to mourn those realities. It's okay to acknowledge the fact that this world and our experience in it is not as it should be. God grieves it too. He mourns with us. And he meets us in that morning, just as we sung about today. But Peter instead draws our eyes, the eyes of our heart, back to the reality of our rejoicing. Not in our passing present circumstances, but in our eternal living hope. A hope that we can continue to rejoice in, even as we are grieving the trials of this life. Peter offers further perspective to fuel our rejoicing amidst the trials that we face. Let's continue to read on. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Well, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes through fire, or I'm sorry, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What we see here is that we can rejoice because we know our trials are never without purpose. Our trials are never without purpose. This refinement process of trials is a theme that is scattered throughout the New Testament. We find it in James 1, where James says, Again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, or when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or endurance, perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul writes something similar in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What we see in Peter and throughout the New Testament is that our trials are the means that God uses to mature us. Our trials are the means that God uses to mature us. Our faith, our character, our endurance as believers. The trials we face of all shapes, sizes, colors, and durations are being used as tools in the Father's hand to mature the mess that is you and me. Now, uh, I, I did do a brief stint in the corporate world, and for those of you who are in the corporate world, you might have had a similar training experience. I guess we can call it training experience. 
at, at Nationwide, we used to have to watch these videos, both when we were being trained in as agents and throughout the lifetime um, of our appointment as insurance agents, we would have to watch these videos that uh, dealt with appropriate business ethics and, uh, and workplace conduct. And so we would watch videos that could be five minutes to an hour long or an entire afternoon long. Videos that dealt with honest versus dishonest business practices. Videos on ways to uh, effectively use and not waste company time. Very important. Videos on... um, what is and isn't appropriate interaction to have with someone of a different race uh, or gender or creed. And so we would watch these videos and uh, these would be our training to make us into better employees and better people. And at the end of these videos, there would be a five to ten question multiple choice test. And when I say test, I mean the easiest possible thing, like you, if you can read, you can pass this test. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what is an appropriate interaction to have with an employee? A, punch them in the face. B, punch them in the throat. C, punch them in the gut. D, shake their hand and say, nice to see you this morning. <sighs> My heart's feeling A. But I really want to pass this thing, I think. B. Now, um, and so we would take these tests and we would get this verbal attaboy at the end that's like, congratulations, great job, you passed our ethics seminar. And at the end, you would get like this little check mark that basically told you, you are now ethical. You are now uh, sensitive to areas of race or gender. Uh, you now know how to interact with your employees. You no longer waste company time. Congratulations. Checkmark. It was great. And it taught us nothing. But as I think about my own sanctification process, as I, as I think about my own refinement process, Truthfully, if I could choose between these mindless videos that I watched or the most basic, minuscule trial, I mean, I am talking like my gaslight comes on when I'm on my way to some place and I've got a half hour to spare and money in my pocket and the shell station is like right there and somebody's waiting to gas up my car, like that level of trial... I would take these multiple choice questionnaires over that. Because the truth is that I'm honestly not super concerned most days about what it's going to take to make me look more like Jesus. If I'm being honest, do I want to look more like Jesus? Absolutely. Give me a multiple choice test. I'll nail it right now. I want to look more like Jesus. I want my life to reflect Him. I want others to see Him when He looks at me. I know that that's what being a Christian is all about. And yet the moment that you present to me a trial of refinement, 
something that is going to cost, something that is going to cut, something that is going to hurt, something that is going to maim for the purposes of molding me into his image, I'm out. I'm really not enjoying this anymore. And I would much rather be comfortable. I would much rather be happy. I would much rather not have to go through the refiner's fire and just take a test. And yet as we consider these trials, we cannot lose the very important focus of the fact that God is using the things that we go through for a purpose that cannot be reached by any other means. And now, it's a fair question to ask. Why the refiner's fire instead of the brainless video? Right? Because I say that he couldn't use any other means, but he's God. Surely he could have thought of a way. I mean, Nationwide did it. Right? Hey, you get 15 minutes where you don't have to take phone calls. I'll pay you for it. Watch this video. Take this test. And guess what? If you fail it, you can retake it. You can actually, if you've watched the video, speed all the way to the end of the video. It doesn't matter. And just retake the test. So really just write down the right answers and just take it. And then you're ethical. Sounds ethical, right? Why not that? Why the refiner's fire? Why would God deem it necessary to use a process of pain instead of one of ease? And the short answer is, he didn't. We did. He created perfection. We destroyed it. He created relationship without need of refinement. We killed it. He created us in his image, and we tainted it. The moment Adam and Eve placed their faith in the lies of Satan over the truth of God, the impurity of that sin spread to all creation in every possible way. Now the wars that we watch on TV, the the weather patterns, to what we think and feel, and ultimately what we put our faith in, been destroyed. His way. His truth. His best for us. We traded it. And I know that we want to, from our vantage point, shake our fist at the sky and ask God why. But is that helpful with where we are right now? I understand the pain and the need to grieve, to mourn, to hate what is broken and evil. But we find ourselves as a point, in a point of human history, similar to all who have come before us, that is not a result of God's cruelness, but a result of our sin. And yet, the beauty of the God that we serve is that He meets us in that brokenness, He meets us in that pain and instead of leaving us in it and saying, well, there you go, you're getting what you deserve. Way to go, way to screw things up. Instead, he meets us in the midst of it and says, 
I can use that. I'm going to use that. And so while our trials are not original to his design, they are now used for his purpose. I'm not a goldsmith, so I cannot confirm the following statement I'm about to make. I, I was really hoping that Larry Weitzel would be here today so that he could stand up and be like, that is true. Uh, I read it enough places, so it has to be true. Um, that's not good, by the way. That's not, I didn't have enough time to become a goldsmith today, this week, okay? There was a lot going on, sermon prep, so just roll with this. Check it out later. But I've read from several sources that the way a goldsmith used to determine whether or not the gold that they were refining was finally pure was that when they looked at it, they could see the reflection in it when it was finally pure. Now, I'm not sure if that's what Peter had in mind when he made the comparison between the way that trials refine our faith and the way that gold is refined, but I think we can all agree it makes an awesome sermon illustration, right? Come on. Be excited about that. Because the fact is that while we are refined as gold, what happens to us? What happens as our faith becomes firmly fixated in who God is and what He says and what He is doing and what He is going to do? What happens when our faith is refined? We begin to reflect His image. We begin to reflect the face of the One who saved us, who gave us faith to believe, who promises that all of those things that are rooted in our living hope and promises to carry them out to completion, as we trust him through the trials, we begin to reflect him more and more. Though it may be difficult to rejoice amidst our refinement, and the pain that comes with us, we can find reason to rejoice in the results of it. Let's continue uh, in the next verse. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here we see that we can rejoice in our trials knowing that our refinement results in our blessing. Our refinement results in our blessing. Here Peter shows several ways that a refined faith results in blessing, both uh, in this life, in the life of the believer, and in the life to come. We see that a refined faith will result in future blessings. Uh, when we think of uh, the life to come, we oftentimes consider, um, you know, those that that scene where we all come together and we praise God for all of eternity, right? It's all about getting to heaven and all of us seeing God as He is, and all we can do is is praise Him with praise unending for all of eternity. And guys, that's going to be a whole lot of it, but it's not all of it. It's not all of it. There is another aspect to that reality that when Christ comes, 
and our, as our faith is refined, um, we see that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That praise, that glory, that honor, that's not directed at him. That is praise and glory and honor that he directs at us. Think about that for a minute. Let your hearts dwell on that reality for a second, that the one who made you, who died for you, who gave you eternal life, and all of this that is, that is fixated in that living hope, that when he comes back, and he finds his faithful child who has stood faithful and endured amidst the hardships of this life, that our endurance will ultimately lead to, to him praising us. It's the well done, my good and faithful servant. It's the, it's the master that we read about with the uh, parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Where he comes back and, and he sees what his children has done, how they've, how they've taken what he's given to them and multiplied it for the sake of his kingdom. And he says, you did awesome. Here, have more. Have more of a share in what I have. It's the, it's the scene that we see further on in Matthew 25 when we are standing before the throne dumbfounded at who he is and that he could possibly look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. All of these things that you did, you did as unto me. Come into my Father's blessing. What? I thought I was just going to come and fall on my knees and praise you. And that's going to be a lot of it. And yet, the reward that awaits, the same reward that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look up the Bema Seat Judgment. Quite an interesting study. But it's all about the fact that we will stand before him one day and give account of our lives. And those who are faithful, who faithfully endure, he will bless. And so we have a future reality that awaits, that impacts our present. That impacts the way that we endure, the way that we stand, the way that we focus, even the way that we grieve. Because we know what awaits the faithful. And there's something so beautiful about the reality. Whether it comes through some kind of tangible reward. Like, what does it look like for God to give you a reward? Like, I think it's so cool when, you know, like after like 10 subs, they give me a free sub. I'm like, my whole week is made. Like, what is it going to be like when I stand at the end of my life before the one true God, and he rewards me in word, in blessing. What? And yet that's what he promises us. And if we lose sight of that amidst just the hardship of life, oh, all that we miss out on. And that's not it. We also see rewards uh, of a refined faith in this life as well. Let's look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. These verses can be a little confusing at first glance. Um, especially that last part. We typically think of uh, the outcome 
of our faith being a, a kind of an end-focused reality, right? The outcome of our faith is, hey, I'm in heaven. Hey, I have all of these blessings, all of these rewards. There we go, I made it. I have the outcome of our faith. And yet what he says in the life of the believer is that the outcome is now. That as you believe, as you love, as you trust, as you press into your relationship with Christ, even in the midst of the trial, even though you can't see him, that we rejoice in this life with a joy that we can't even comprehend. Because we have already obtained, right? It's kind of what Stephen talked about last week, the, the making withdrawals on, a, a withdrawals, there we go, on, on, on future promises in the here and now. Well, the outcome of our faith is, is now centered. We've received it in the salvation of our souls, in the relationship with the one who saved us. And as we press into the realities of that relationship, joy follows suit. And yet, if our trials, if our present realities in temporary circumstances become our greatest focus, how easy is it for those to cloud out the greater realities? The, both the eternal realities and the here and now realities of our living hope. It becomes really easy, doesn't it? And yet we have this blessing in the, in the then and the blessing in the now that meets us in our grief and allows us to say, this is hard and I hate it and it hurts and I don't want it. And yet I know you're here with me as I mourn, with me as I grieve. And I know that you are using this I know that you are taking this and using it to refine me, using this to bring about my greatest good. And I know that as I endure, as I remain faithful, that you are going to meet me in this place, both with blessing in this life and in the one to come. And so I believe you. I love you. I live for you, both now and forever. That's our hope. So that when we turn on the TV, or when we get that phone call, or when we get the financial update in our email, or when we fill in the blank, I understand when it comes to trials, we could all stand up and say, yeah, but, but you don't understand this. Yeah, but you don't understand this. Yeah, but you, I get it. We could all do that for days. And what would we gain? Other than a line of people standing up front, ranked in order from darkest crayon to lightest crayon. And then where are we left? Does our hope actually infiltrate that space? Does what we have in Christ, does that... Does that penetrate what's happening in the Ukraine right now? Does it penetrate your darkest hour, my darkest hour? It should. 
Because of those who have been saved by God's grace and given something in the here and now and in the forever, we are ambassadors of that hope. And if we are not pressing into those realities with the greater reality that we've been given in Christ, then what is this? A self-help group? A club where we all affirm the same things and then go back and act the way everyone else does? We've been given the hope. That's why our missionaries are staying in the trenches looking for ways that they can be used to be the hope because who has it in the midst of such chaos? And I know we want to guarantee. I know we want to promise. I know we want to know when this trial is going to end. You know what? For Peter, who wrote this letter, it ended with him being hung upside down, nailed to a cross. And for many of the recipients of this letter, it led to untold persecution and death. And guys, that might be the faith that I await. That might be the faith that you await as well. But there is a living hope that we have been given that lives beyond this life. Where are the eyes of our heart? Let's be ambassadors of that great hope. Let's pray. Father, it's been a difficult week. And we know that the little while of our trials is no guarantee. And we know that the variety of trials that we might face may be of the severest kind, of the most costly. And yet, we know that we can continue to rejoice because the hope that you've given us is a hope that stretches beyond this life and into the next. And it's a hope that impacts this life until we come to the next. It's a hope that makes us relevant to this world, even as we are experiencing our trials. And so, God, I pray that our hope and our rejoicing would not be in the good days or the good life or when everything is going good on our definition of what is good. But, God, I pray that our hope, that our rejoicing would be in a God who has saved us, who has called us into relationship with him and who works every single situation that we face out to our good. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.